Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to the support of our Patreon members. Here's episode eight. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. I've always been into building guitars, tearing them apart, and I've wasted a lot of guitars. I've stumbled onto a lot of a lot of great ideas and like this, this one I built. This is this is the original guitar that. Um, I mean, if people really saw this thing up close, <laughs> I mean. And we're back, part two of our tribute to Eddie Van Halen, Moods and Modes, episode eight. That is the great one himself describing the guitar that changed the world in a very self-deprecating manner, and gives the impression he didn't quite know what he was doing. I didn't know how to wire the stuff back up. See, this is a switch that's supposed to be there. <laughs> you know, lift and move. See, that says tone. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a volume knob, but when you turn it up, you get nice tone. <laughs> it's not even hooked up. It does nothing. <laughs> and I just use Schwinn. Looks great, though. I just use Schwinn bicycle paint and uh, stopped at a truck stop one night. And I'm going, hey, I want some reflectors for the end of the show. You know? This is so incredible to listen to. He's giving a tour of his home studio to a reporter from MTV. This is on a Facebook channel called MTV Classic. Now, I missed this when it aired on television. Video interviews of Eddie were fairly rare. There were plenty of print interviews and guitar magazines and occasionally Rolling Stone. But it wasn't that common to hear his voice. There was an air of mystery surrounding him. We knew him from the sound of his guitar and occasional backup vocal, but offstage he was a quiet craftsman. 
Back then, television interviews with Van Halen 1.0 tended to exclusively feature or be dominated by vocalist David Lee Roth, the polar opposite of Eddie's introverted scientist-like personality, not exactly publicity-shy, and bringing to mind a hard rock version of a Vegas performer, such as Tom Jones, Wayne Newton, or Liberace. The focal point of Van Halen's shows is lead singer David Lee Roth. Roth doesn't walk, he struts, doesn't just sing, but howls at the moon. David Lee Roth is the master of the sizzling one-liner. I love talking, I love telling jokes. For me, this is just one, one big wet t-shirt contest, you know. And that was who the music industry presented as the face of Van Halen, quote-unquote. Eddie and Alex, meanwhile, this being their band and their name, and Eddie being more of this quiet, brooding, perfectionist inventor offstage, you can kind of understand them being driven a little nuts by this. Now, in fairness to Dave, there's more to him than the shallow surfer dude persona he projected at that time. He would go on to be trained as an EMT and a paramedic on the streets of New York, study a highly disciplined type of Japanese art, a subject of a recent New York Times profile. Still, you can understand the differences that existed between him and the Van Halen brothers, especially when you hear them talk. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that this is the last quarter of the 20th century. So social media hadn't arrived yet, artists didn't have Facebook pages or Instagram accounts, and reality TV shows that were so revealing, like Gene Simmons' Family Jewels or The Osbournes, were still many years away. So an artist like Eddie, whose voice you hardly ever heard in the media, had that much more of an air of mystery. Wolfie asked me, he goes, you know, when you're, when you're doing that, that the high stuff on the guitar, which my mom used to say, why do you have to make that high crying noise? <laughs> it bought your house, didn't it? But, uh, Wolfie goes, I really like it when you do that. And I go, well, that's called improvising. Either, either you stray off the melody, somebody else can get that. This really feels like a glimpse into the life of one of the great artists of our time. I don't just mean artist in terms of musician, songwriter, guitarist, but artist in the same way you would use the term to describe a sculptor, painter, or other craftsperson whose work is worthy of display in a prestigious museum. Now, obviously, being in a museum wasn't the goal. Eddie was no aspiring Rothko or Pollock. He was a musician first. And his reinvention of musical instruments and tone were not done with the spirit of someone who seeks a spot at L.A.'s Museum of Contemporary Art, but rather that of an everyday auto hobbyist tinkering in a suburban garage. Listening to him speak, you can tell. He never set out to change the world. He was just pursuing a sound he heard in his head. And as long as he could make that guitar look interesting with the help of electrical tape, Schwinn bicycle paint, and reflectors purchased at a truck stop, why not? I think it's safe to say Eddie was an accidental contemporary artist. Now, I realize mentioning Eddie Van Halen in the same breath as Leonardo da Vinci, one of the most important and influential inventors and visual artists in all of human history, might be considered a bit of a leap. But strictly in the world of electric guitar, Van Halen was like R. da Vinci. Fittingly enough, Eddie's first custom instrument, the one that would forever alter the craft of electric guitar building and be used on an album that would inspire more people to pick up a guitar than anyone since Jimi Hendrix, would end up as part of an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The exhibit, which included instruments played by Chuck Berry, The Beatles, Prince, Led Zeppelin, and too many artists to name, also included a full replica of Eddie's original setup with amplifiers and foot pedals. This was in the spring of 2019, and it was called Play It Loud, named after a book all about electric guitar and its history, written by Brad Talinsky, who ran Guitar World for a long time, is considered one of the preeminent experts on the electric guitar's development, and who I'm pleased to welcome to Moods and Modes. Yeah, yeah, I spent... Uh spent quite a bit of time with Ed uh -huh. and you know in in his recording studio in 5150 and actually had the pleasure of playing his Frankenstein through his Marshall <laughs> wow and no and dream. no I didn't sound like Ed Van Halen <laughs> at all and no I didn't play any Van Halen riffs because that would have just been yeah dumb. why <laughs> <laughs> but 
it's a it's a thrill. I mean, that was probably for me like one of the coolest aspects of being at Guitar World and doing these stories mm-hmm. is a lot of times getting the opportunity to actually play on these historic instruments. Oh yeah. And it gave you some insight into the the playing and the player as well as to how these things felt and how they're set up and you know um I think maybe the one thing that was interesting about playing Ed's guitar as opposed to some other instruments was there was a little bit of fight in the actual guitar. Right? Wasn't easy it wasn't, to play. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but it wasn't hard, but there was like a little bit of fight in it. Right. You know what I mean? It wasn't, the action wasn't so low. The people asked me about, well, what was it like to see Ed play up close and, uh, you know, in, in sort of this intimate way? And the thing that always struck me was also, which I think was essential to his sound, was there was always a, a physicality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's much different than, say, uh, Jimmy Page, who has a fairly light touch and, and, you know, just approaches the instrument in a different kind of way. You know, Ed, it seemed like everything that he played was with purpose. Yes. It's, it's hard to explain. But even, you know, in a casual setting, there was a, you know, a physicality in that, you know, every note meant something. Like even even in the most casual sense, you know, I don't know if he knew how to play the guitar in a casual way. I know exactly what Brad's talking about here. I recently saw some private video footage of Eddie playing guitar in someone's living room. He's plugged into a small practice amp. He's playing a bit, he stops, he talks guitars, tells some stories, plays some more, stops, tells some more stories. I can't reveal the source of this video. Again, it's private footage. But you could not get a more casual playing situation. And his playing sounds anything but casual. He's striking every chord and single note with such an energy that it sounds the same as it would if he were on stage or in the studio. Yet this seems to happen without a second thought on his part. It's totally effortless. Sometimes he even does a running commentary or self-deprecating joke while he's playing. And the quality sounds the same. At one point he gets up to adjust a little practice amp. It seems like a little Fender PV or microcube. And he gets this intense look, and he turns the knobs as though he's at sound check and the band is going to play Madison Square Garden in a few hours. Then he turns around, goes back to playing, smiles, and everything is normal again. This was very consistent with how Brad described watching Eddie play up close. We'll get back to Brad in a bit. First, a few observations. One is that Eddie Van Halen seemed like someone who was more comfortable communicating musically than verbally. I think this is true for a lot of us who play musical instruments. We're just more comfortable with that as a means of communication. We don't come across as somebody who's media trained. In fact, even when I talk to you on this podcast, I've largely worked out what I want to say and I've tightened it up. This is a little different than how I communicate in casual conversation, in which I usually choose my words a bit more carefully and I might take longer to get to the point. I don't think that would work as well for this podcast, and I think you would agree with me. Yet hearing Eddie speak, this all seems even more true than for most musicians who come to mind. The pauses are there, but they're a bit longer, and they happen in unusual places. There are also occasional tangents where he'll veer a bit off topic, sometimes finding his way back and finishing the original thought, but not always. This is surprising mainly because this is someone so in the public eye and so high profile. One almost gets the sense that Eddie Van Halen remained the type of person who would rather just speak through his music. If anybody did the talking, let it be the singers. After all, he had David Lee Roth, Mr. Flamboyance, camera ready at all times, who could never turn it off. And even if he could, he wouldn't want to. And it's not like Sammy Hagar was some calming presence. No, he wasn't as over the top as David Lee Roth, but he was all about tequila and cabo-wabo and being the life of the party. So it seems a bit like Eddie became an unwitting representative of this lifestyle and these types of personalities purely by association. I imagine this was hard for him. Keep in mind, this is somebody who enjoyed solitude, whether being in the garage, experimenting with tools and instrument parts, or being in a recording or rehearsal studio, experimenting with sounds. 
I think it was put really well a few years ago by one of my favorite current writers, Chuck Klosterman, and I quote, The contradiction is stark. While directing the ultimate California party band, Eddie Van Halen took little pleasure from partying, unquote. It's a pretty fascinating piece. Here's another passage, quote, For most of his career, he rode on tour. After every show, the other three members of the band would hit the town and carouse, but not Eddie. Eddie would remain alone in his hotel room, where he'd spend the entire night drinking vodka, snorting cocaine, and noodling into a tape recorder. I didn't drink to party, he says now, sober since 2008. Alcohol and cocaine were private things to me. I'd use them for work. The blow keeps you awake, and the alcohol lowers your inhibitions. I'm sure there were musical things I would not have attempted were I not in that state. You just play by yourself with a tape running, and after about an hour, your mind goes to a place where you're not thinking about anything, unquote. This is from a Billboard cover story in 2015 promoting Van Halen's upcoming tour, which sadly would prove to be their last. It brings up a bunch of thoughts on drugs and their influence in music, which unfortunately can be devastating. You know, we talked about this in the Peter Green episode, and then you look at what happened with Jimi Hendrix, and there's some great music that's been created without drugs. Frank Zappa never did drugs. A lot of people thought he did. And also what Eddie's saying about playing nonstop, recording yourself into a tape recorder for over an hour until you go into this mysterious zone where creative ideas happen. You can do that without drugs. Might help to practice yoga or meditation. And some artists are able to move on from heavy drug or alcohol use and still be creative but others wrestle with addiction their whole lives. It sounds like Eddie was wrestling with addiction from the time he was very young, and it was probably not helped by being in this band where he's seen as this party mascot. Here's Brad again. The, the cool thing was the family and Ed always trusted us mm -hmm. to uh, not only be, and, and this was super important to him, not just to be informative, but also be able to hang with him in a more personal kind of way mm. it wouldn't just be you know a journalist firing questions at him right and uh vic garbarini did uh, a really extraordinary interview with ed uh around the time the van halen three uh it, this was a period where ed was going into therapy and uh super sober time for him and Vic was very in touch with the, you know, therapeutic world and the psychological world. And he got an extraordinary interview. I just had this feeling that they would click on some level. And uh, the interview he did for Guitar World is unlike, I think, anything else out there. It really goes uh, super deep into uh, Ed was going through an intense therapy at the time. And they really connected on that level as well as a musical level. I'm not familiar with this interview he's referring to. I'm very curious to check it out. It's around the time of Van Halen 3. And it gets you thinking about addictions and other demons and personal struggles. Eddie was far from the only person that had to deal with this stuff. That's been made all the more clear in recent years with news of the opioid crisis and other high-profile stories. And it just goes to show that stumbling into success beyond anyone's wildest dreams on a creative level, on a financial level, on other levels, and achieving universal admiration is not necessarily a cure for any underlying mental health or addiction issues. Sometimes it can make the problems worse. And in the story of Eddie Van Halen, this is a chapter that can't be avoided. But let's get back to the music now. In the last episode, we listened to part of a lecture series called Make Music Monthly. If you'll recall, this took place at Cornelia Street Cafe, a beloved venue, sadly no longer around, in New York's Greenwich Village. Each month, a different artist was brought in to be interviewed and demonstrate a historical piece of music, usually from the classical, jazz, or world canons. In this case, the piece was Eddie Van Halen's Eruption. Now, all the content leading up to this clip can be found in Episode 7, Eddie Van Halen Part 1. It's also available online at SoundCloud. Just go to SoundCloud.com, enter Make Music Monthly or Make Music New York, and enter my name. And just to keep things in context, you're going to hear the tail end of how this segment wrapped up in Episode 7, and then it picks up right where we left off. Here is Make Music Monthly. 
So it, it helps to have that extra frequency and this sort of oscillating in the background. So he had this crazy guitar. He had this unusual setup. He had these, these amplifiers that were basically blowing up. But he did whatever he could to get his sound. And it, it'll, in many ways, heavy metal, uh, all the heavy metal that followed was built off of that sound. So um, you mentioned that the third part of the solo was the one that everyone sort of talks about. Yes. Well, I also think it, people talk about it too much. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. It's groundbreaking. But I think it's unfortunately overshadowed the rest of the solo. Well, then let's start at the beginning of the solo. Okay, yeah, what's sure. the first thing that happens in the, in the piece? Oh, this is something he does a lot of. Right? Just like uh, the, the pick slide. Um, I keep in mind the band is playing when he's playing. Big cymbal crap. Okay, so right here. Normal blues lick. But what, what happens next, he starts this process of licks, and it, it goes from one lick to the next. Lightning speed and transitions that you would never expect. And a great use of open strings as well. So I'll, let's just play, let's yeah, just look yeah, at the first section example, again. Yeah. Okay. So this thing right here, he's... um. He's doing this, this open string lick, and there's a little bit of debate about e exactly how he's doing it, right? I've seen guys on YouTube. <laughs> I've seen girls on YouTube. There's actually this 14-year-old girl who's, who's really good. Um, most, the way I see most people doing this, most people play it like this. I'm just going to jump in here. There are no audience mics, so there is a full house there, and they are laughing at my jokes, I assure you. But uh, you're just not hearing them. And uh, the moderator's name, once again, is uh, Aaron Friedman from Make Music New York. All right, so what that is, it's a, um, it's a pick, a hammer. All right, that's when you play the next note with your finger and don't pick. And that's a pull-off. All right, so he had this great combination of hammer-ons and pull-offs. And I get used to he you know, hearing it like... Um, But I, I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's actually going at it. So the difference is, and I'm back. Guess who's back? Back again. Pardon the Eminem quote, which is also in the new Borat movie. But I just want to jump in and uh, explain and make it a little clearer than I did during the lecture. I'm going to try not to lose the non-guitarists. And I'm not going to play because it's broken down and played in the clip. But I'm talking about the first pull-off lick in the eruption, and I believe the E that most people play on the 5th fret 2nd string is actually played with the open E string instead. The reason I believe that is because there are other examples of that lick played in B where he definitely uses the open E string. I will demonstrate this in a little bit. There's another song much later, Hot for Teacher, where he does the same lick in F sharp, also with the open E. So I think when he plays it at the fifth fret, he's using the open E, which is not how I usually see it taught. Uh, there's a, this open string. So if I play it really slow, it's an open string. The next string, picked, pull, and then pull. Open string. And then that's hammered on. And th this is also, uh, it's very musically sophisticated, right? Because it's, it's a group of five notes. Guys in rock and roll aren't supposed to play quintuplets. I, I think he's doing this uh, open string, partly because I hear it in other Van Halen tunes. Okay, so now he goes here. Now that was a huge influence on... Everything I played. <laughs> ever, that that ever. moment right there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and this is something else I should point out. Van Halen very rarely repeats himself. That's one of the things that makes him so great, especially in, in this period. But th this actually repeats, but for a very short time. So it's just... 
Again, it's a quintuplet. And I'm jumping in once more. This is a very overlooked component of Eddie Van Halen's playing. It almost seems to be a secret. Shh, secret. The Eddie Van Halen secret quintuplet, which brings to mind the Carlos Santana secret chord progression, which was actually done in jest by Frank Zappa on a song called Variations on the Carlos Santana secret chord progression. Because if you listen to Santana songs like Oye Como Va or Evil Ways, well, they're basically the same song. I read an interview with Santana asking if he'd heard the Zappa song, and he had, and he laughed his butt off, quote unquote. So it's good to know Carlos Santana has a sense of humor. But the Eddie Van Halen secret quintuplet is no joke. There are several quintuplets in eruption alone, as I talk about in that lecture. There's that very first pull-off lick involving open strings, which I believe includes the open E string. I'll talk more about that in a moment. There's the second pull-off lick, which repeats basically both the repeating licks that kick off eruption. Those are five-note groups, also known as quintuplets. If you listen to the Kreutzer violin section, which we talked about in the previous episode, da, 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 do, 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 do. going into that, there's a quintuplet snuck in there, and coming out of it, there's a quintuplet. They're both played with different notes on different parts of the neck, and they're done really, really fast. So I'm not going to get into them here, but they are there. Trust me. Instead, I want to jump to Van Halen 2, a song we also talked about in the previous episode, Somebody Get Me a Doctor. Now, this lick has driven me nuts for years. I've never heard anybody play it right. Even Eddie changes it up, but he's the one that did the original. I can't play it just like him. Uh, there's a great quote from Steve Vai in the new Rolling Stone tribute issue for Eddie Van Halen, where he says, quote, I could never play like him. I never tried. Only an idiot competes with Eddie Van Halen. He's totally right. And he talked about this in the context of playing Van Halen songs with David Lee Roth in Roth's solo band immediately after Roth left Van Halen. So again, you can only try so hard to play Eddie's stuff. It was second nature for him. But I did my best approximation on this lick. It's still not quite right. I hear something missing, but it's close enough. This is the lick. It's hard to verbalize it. It's kind of... Even in slow motion, it's very fast. The quintuplet is these first five notes of this phrase. So it's a group of five morphing into a group of four. This is not typical rock and roll stuff. This is next level musicianship. All that listening to Alan Holdsworth with Tony Williams, which we talked about in the previous episode, that's an example of that coming out. Now here it is one more time, and it's going to continue into the next lick, which I promised we would get to because this relates to the eruption lick with the open string. Check it out. I would love to keep that going. I don't want us to lose our train of thought. So that lick there is the open string lick from Eruption, except played a whole step higher in B instead of A. And starting on an open E string. That's also in I'm the One, the exact same lick. So for that reason... That's why I think when he does it in A, it's with the open E string. Okay, so here's the lick in B, starting with the open E string. Here it is in A. Not this. Everybody on YouTube is wrong! Just kidding. Play it however you like. Now back to our lecture. He's muting, so he's got so much distortion. I, you know, I think that that was a that was a very new thing back then. I'd never heard that. Okay, so it starts out with the uh, you know airplane taking off sound kind of thing, and then uh, the you know blues uh, figures to kind of set the tonality, and then this um, part that you were just talking about with the pulling off and yeah, the uh, and the five and, note, the quintuple. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to the end of the first section. What what's the next part of the piece? The band makes one last appearance. Yeah. All right. <laughs> 
and I, I think, and I'm not sure about this, but I, I, I believe he switches on the Phase 90 at that time. And at this time, we are approaching the half hour mark. So let's take a break and do some housekeeping. I'll keep this brief. We still have a whole other guest who's coming on and other stuff to get to. So uh, first, I want to say thank you for the responses to Episode 7, Eddie Van Halen Part 1. It's much appreciated. And that was not an easy episode to do. I was very emotional, as so many of us were. But time is healing, and um, I'm having a bit more fun on this one. Uh, Some of the silliness from the earlier episodes is returning, if you can't tell. And as we announced in the previous episode, we are now in partnership with Osiris Media. This is our second episode together. And Osiris has a whole network of very fine music and culture podcasts. One of my favorites is Past, Present, Future Live, which I appeared on a couple episodes ago. This week, they have Larkin Poe. Have you heard these girls? Unbelievable. They play beautifully. They sing beautifully. They have very good taste in guitars. I believe I saw an SG very similar to my 68. Anyway, it's been great uh, being part of the Osiris team. A lot of folks are finding the podcast as a result. And it's nice to have extra sets of ears and folks to bounce ideas off of. And speaking of ideas, you listeners are welcome to send me ideas as well. A few of you have done that on Instagram. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. At Alex Skolnick. And uh, some episode ideas are being taken under consideration. So, um, yeah, feel free. Don't be shy. Uh, Share your thoughts. And uh, please continue to subscribe. Tell your friends about the podcast. That helps. And finally, I'm going to sort of do an ad. I guess my first ad. This is from Zoom. Not the conferencing platform, but Zoom, the audio company. Uh, Zoom has graciously kicked down a device for this podcast. It's called the PodTrack P4. P4 is the ultimate recorder for podcasters. Features four microphone inputs with phantom power, four headphone outputs with individual volume control, multi-track recording for all inputs plus sound pads, automatic mix minus for call-in phone interviews. Oh, I am so stoked about that. Programmable sound pads, USB audio interface, up to four hours with two alkaline batteries. How'd I do? Okay, I got a little excited about this thing being able to help with phone interviews. That's been one of the biggest challenges. In fact, uh, the the Brad Talinsky interview that you're hearing today started with a ton of echo. I'm now getting tons of echo from you. And then the usual setup, I have to do this three-way call because when the cell phone is recording from the output jack, the person can't hear me, so I have to add a call on the line. It's a big to-do. So I'm really psyched that um, this pod track by Zoom is going to help with the phone interviews. And it just sounds like it's going to be a really good mobile device, too, especially once travel starts up again next year. I will be able to keep this up on the road thanks to the PodTrack P4 by Zoom. Now back to our regular scheduled programming. Matt Blackett is the longtime associate editor of Guitar Player Magazine. That's the guitar magazine on the West Coast that was the first national magazine devoted exclusively to guitar. And uh, he has been in product marketing and development for a number of years, currently with Evertune Bridges, which are very cool. I have one on a guitar. And he came back to Guitar Player just to oversee their current tribute issue to Eddie Van Halen, which is on stands now. It's very cool. They talk to many, many guitar players. I have a quote in there. Eddie's first big national interview is reprinted in there. Uh, You should definitely check that out. Lots of other stuff, including classic photos that many of us have never seen before. These great pictures just seem to be turning up. And the front cover alone is worth it. 
uh, frameable picture of Eddie. So Matt, being in marketing, has a voice and a flow like I aspire to when I do the podcast, even when we're just hanging out and it's casual conversation. So I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from him. I'm going to let him go for a while, and I'll jump in if any thoughts come to mind. Here is my conversation with Matt Blackett. And suddenly everybody had to do a guitar solo, and it, it became like this blueprint for all these bands, but nobody could do it on that level. You know, they're, they're just so much bigger than that scene that they get identified with. Yep, I agree with that. And it's all because of Eddie. The band had great chemistry, and I give Dave a lot of credit for just getting them out to the masses. That it's, you know, without him, Eddie could have been much more of like a Holdsworth kind of figure or something. You know, brilliant player, but without yeah. this huge mass appeal, right? And so I do love, I love the whole band. And I really do, but it's all about Eddie. He wrote the riffs, he wrote the music, and he was the visionary with this. And to a very similar degree, the same thing happened with Hendrix, right? Where everybody after him tried to do a Jimmy thing. Some of it was good. Uh, most of it, we don't really think about anymore. And we just think of Jimmy. And, yeah. and I'm fine with that. Uh, I think the same is going to be true with Van Halen, that... People are going to recognize everything that came in his wake. And it's funny, an interview I did early in my career at Guitar Player uh, was with John Frusciante from the Chili Peppers. And Peppers, yeah. he was talking about players that he liked. And he said, I like Eddie Van Halen's playing, uh, but I don't really like anybody who was influenced by him. And I said, well, oh, I'm one of those guys who was influenced by him, but I understand what you mean. <laughs> I just let it, let it ride. And, and he's not totally wrong. I would never go, and I don't think even he means it quite that brutally, but I, I know what he means. And I, I do, do know, I do know what yeah. yeah. mm-hmm. I think we all do. And I think that's fine. And I think we're going to realize that he was, he truly was the innovator on this. And plenty of great musicians came along after and were deeply inspired by him and did their own thing. And I love a lot of these players, but I interviewed plenty of those guys for this story. And every one of them just said, no, Eddie's the man for this. Yeah. He just is. And, and, and that's it. We're all in agreement. And it was really beautiful to talk to so many successful, brilliant musicians. And all they wanted to do was talk about him as a fan. And a lot of them knew him. A lot of them hang, they would hang out. They'd play music together. But they're just speaking as fans. Like, we're all in this together. And we're all the same. And it, for me, it was just very cathartic it was very beautiful it's helping me process this whole thing because i'm sure it's probably similar for you i've never very, experienced yeah. this with a quote-unquote celebrity death this doesn't mm-hmm. feel like that to me this feels yeah. like a loved one it feels like a family member exactly. or a beloved animal hendrix is so associated with other music that just tends to um reach new audiences time after time. I think partly because it was just, it was part of the social fabric, right? It was classified with, you know, the Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan, you know, the Beatles, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. There's this really important era of music. It helped stop a war, arguably. And I think, you know, because of that, Van Halen's influence, more for musicians, the band didn't reach as many people as like... The, the Hendrix the experience did. But I think as far as guitar players, you can absolutely make the comparison, even though it's like a sacred comparison, right? Because you don't compare anybody to Hendrix. But I think in Eddie's case, it, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I think that the, the cultural appeal is still really huge. And even though you're right, it didn't stop a war, so to speak, but it, and it represents more sort of the good time party music. That has its place as well, and uh, it's when you think about how many people he made happy. We were just watching the jump video, and he just looks so happy in that. And that's the thing that came through with everyone I talked to. They all love his tone. Everybody loves his technique. Everybody loves the riffs and the note choices. But what everyone spoke to was just the un bridled joy that the guy played with and that is the thing and that goes to the jazz comparison too that he had this freedom right he didn't care 
He's going to get from point A to point B. He's going to do it in this really super cool way. But nobody's going to tell him, like, no, you can't play that note. That note's not in key. That's the, We don't do that. That's breaking the rules. Man, he didn't care at all about that yeah. stuff. And I think he gave us the freedom to do the same thing. And and, and I would That's do exactly right. well to think about that because, no, I, I play by the rules, man. I, I yeah. play notes that are in key. Yeah. I stay within the box, right? I don't know if that's a good thing. If we learn anything from him, it's to play with joy, play with freedom, not care, and, and just mean it. Everything yeah. he did, he just he meant it. It was, it was so sincere and, uh, yeah. and so genuine, incredible, like childlike innocence. And I just, I love it. And I think that ultimately, and you know, all that goes to just talking about soul. Like I remember when I got interviewed um, many years ago when he was first reuniting with Dave, I guess. And it was like the LA times interviewed uh, me. We talked for an hour and they gave me one sentence in the story. Uh, <laughs> that's how it goes, right? Fine, whatever. I've had to edit people too, so I understand. But um, but the guy said, he was talking about like a lot of people who've come after him kind of like had better technique or can play quote unquote faster or can do this or cleaner or this or that. And I said, yeah, you're right. And he goes, what do you think the difference is? Like, why do we still like Eddie better? And I said, it's a soul. Mm -hmm. He just plays with yes. soul. And and again, not to question the soul of people who came after him, but I do think that was the danger for people who chased after the technique but ignored the swing and ignored yeah. the sort of crazy thing. You know, I just I just listened to the um, So This Is Love solo. And, uh -huh. man, you want to talk about something that swings. It's crazy. Like, he plays with oh, the yeah. time so much in that that you're going like, okay, are, are we okay here? Like, are you going to be able to pull oh, this yeah. back in? And he does. <laughs> and he does it brilliantly. Oh, yeah. And it's amazing. And I'm just thinking, like, I can't do that. Like, I've worked on my time a lot. We all have, right? But yeah. I'm always trying to just have perfect time. I don't know that I have the ability to push and pull. If I do it, I'm probably not doing it in a good way. And he did it in such a good way. Yeah, it was so deep, and the sense of time. I mean, yeah, I, I think it, it would it would have been like Count Basie would have approved of the, the swing, right? Some of the stuff swings so hard. Yep, I agree with you, and and I think that's the kind of stuff like we've all talked about it, we've all analyzed it. He never analyzed it; he just did, right? right? You know, he's not trying to swing. That's just the way his heart beats. That's the way he place that's what comes naturally because you can find a bunch of live versions of the so this is love solo and he plays it just like that oh, yeah. little drums and bass guitar for our friends out there Nineteen eighty-one, the Oakland Coliseum, Van Halen live. So this is love. I was not old enough to attend this concert, but man, I wish I was there. This is the solo Matt Blackett was referring to. Let's check it out. Oh my goodness. Unbelievable. He does a really cool part at the end, too. Very similar. Now, when I hear that, well, first of all, the groove is fantastic. You know, props to Alex and props to Mike. Mike Anthony does not get enough credit. Listen to what he's doing there, man. It's super melodic, super in the pocket, and his tone is crisp, and he's nailing amazing background vocals. And Eddie, what can you say? Oh, I think he's going to do another solo. Oh. 
Wow, so good. I wish I was there. The whole band is on fire. I just heard a great bass line. You should listen back and listen to the bass, man. I got to really give props to Mike here. Do, 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 do. He's just creating great melodies. But of course, Eddie is just over the top. There are so few musicians you can say this about that it's state-of-the-art playing. It was back then, and it still is today. Now, in the previous episode, I talked about one of Eddie's unique patterns that just screams the blues and sounds kind of familiar, except I've never heard anybody else do it. This is a pattern he does in a lot of the high-powered endings on the first album at lightning speed. He does a very similar pattern in other songs, like the one we were just hearing, uh, also, Ice Cream Man, Feel Your Love Tonight. If you listen for it, you'll find it. I'm not going to get into too much detail here, but I broke it down extensively in Episode 7. Now recall how we ended up in the first half of this episode. We were listening to the lecture at Make Music New York, and the clip wrapped up with the mention of an effects pedal called the MXR Phase 90. Here's a brief reminder. I believe he switches on the phase 90 at that time. First part he doesn't have. Now I had mentioned the last time around that Eddie was one of the first guitarists to popularize this pedal. First in hard rock, as far as I know. And I had a few theories about where he may have gotten the idea to do it mostly concerning other guitar players. But here is an alternate theory that I find very interesting. Let's bring back Brad Tolinsky. Like, I think the way Ed used his uh, MXR Phase 90, and if this is getting too nerdy, let me know. <laughs> A little bit of nerdy stuff is great. Yeah. Okay. Was not so much for the effect, was to create different textures in, in his tone, like when he bent a note a certain way and it hit the uh, phasing at a certain point, uh, it was more expressive than the way most people use the phase 90. Um, and I'll, I'll make another weird comparison for you. Sure. Uh, it was very similar to the way that, uh, and I don't think that Ed got this from them again, but it was more similar to the way uh, Jean-Luc Ponty, the jazz violinist, used uh, Phase 90 in his violin playing to create certain textures and tones. And even to some degree how Jan Hammer was using it on his, you know, digitally on his synthesizer, too. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm jumping in. I had never thought about this before. Now, Jan Hammer was the keyboardist on all the big Jeff Beck albums in the 70s. Also with uh, John McLaughlin. So no guitarist back then wouldn't have heard him. And Eddie plays keyboards too, a prolific keyboardist. So him combining the phase sound that Jan Hammer was using on those records totally makes sense. But what I never thought about was Jean-Luc Ponty, who had that sound on a stringed instrument. Here's a clip. Interesting, right? And a lot of guitar-like phrasing there. Guitar players in the 70s could not avoid John Luke Ponty. He was the violinist for John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu Orchestra. He was a violinist for Frank Zappa. Frank Zappa would later become Van Halen's friend, and Eddie would even give Dweezil guitar lessons. But most importantly, the guitarist on this track playing a solo right before this is none other than Eddie's biggest influence, Alan Holdsworth. those licks sound familiar? Specifically, this one? 
My friends, I think we have found something very rare. Van Halen's licks are not usually traceable to any other recordings by any other guitarist. But in this case, I think that is a lick that he no doubt transcribed. That's practically a quote. It shows up numerous times in the classic Van Halen solos, and it's all over the live bootleg recordings. But for me, this lick brings to mind a solo from one of Eddie's very rare recordings outside of Van Halen. And of course, I'm talking about Eddie's most widely heard solo from Beat It by Michael Jackson. And the album that's from is called Enigmatic Ocean, and it was number one on the Billboard Jazz Charts in 1977. Jean-Luc Ponty with Alan Holdsworth on guitar. Now, if that's not evidence that Eddie may have heard the Phase 90 used by Jean-Luc Ponty, as per Brad Talinsky's theory, I don't know what is. So there was a lot of interesting, you know, aspects to, I think, Ed's playing and, and tone. I don't want to push this jazz narrative too hard. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, outside of Alan Holdsworth, I don't think that Ed was, you know, like a huge jazz head or anything. But I do think that there are certain parallels between what was happening in 1976, you know, when Ed was going through his formative years. And I do think this weird hair metal and thrash metal phase that you know very well. Yeah, I know where, a little bit about it. Yeah. <laughs> where where guitar players were sort of outdoing each other right. and, and pushing the boundaries of uh, harmonically of what a guitar solo should be within a rock context, I think is very similar to what was going on in, in jazz during that uh, bebop phase. Yeah, he was exposed to a lot of different music, right? I think you can hear that in songs like Big Bad Bill. And Ed and Al actually used to do wedding gigs and stuff with their dad mm. and, uh, you know, play a lot of standards and, you know, pop popular, earlier popular songs and, and even polkas and things like that that most, most rock players probably wouldn't have necessarily been uh, exposed to. So that also contributed to how much like Ed, like his solos and his playing always had a swing to it. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that really Which, sets him apart. Yeah. And, and, and I, and I think that that's really, you know, it's all these little things that people don't necessarily intellectually understand, but they feel. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, Ed's rhythm playing and his sense of groove and, you know, was, that, that was, there was a huge beauty in that as well. Brown skin woman's bobbed his head. Big bad Bill don't fight anymore. No, no, no. Doing the dishes, mopping up that floor. Yes, he is. Barely used to go out drinking, looking for a fight. Now I gotta see that sweet woman every night. Big bad Bill is sweet William now. I feel like we've suddenly entered a Woody Allen film and the closing credits are running, which in a sense they are. That is Jan Van Halen on the clarinet, the patriarch of the Van Halen family. Now, Eddie supposedly was not happy with this song, uh, wishes they hadn't done it. I respectfully disagree. I think the reason for that is he associated it with Dave at a time when him and Roth were driving each other nuts. It was Dave's idea to do the song. Dave gets to ham it up. And Eddie was just fed up by that point. It wasn't long before the split with Roth. This is on an album called Diver Down. But I think it's great they did the song. I think it's fun. It shows incredible diversity. And what an opportunity to bring in Mr. Van Halen. Are they the New Orleans Preservation Hall jazz band? No. Did they pull this off? Absolutely. And it actually goes back to their roots, playing shows with their dad. So I respectfully disagree with Eddie on this one topic. And before we close, I want to read one more quote from that Rolling Stone interview with Steve Vai, who had the sort of unenviable task of being in a position of being very compared to Van Halen with David Lee Roth's post-Van Halen band. Quote, The day after I left David Lee Roth's band in 1989, I don't know how Edward found out, but he called me. 
that was the start of a nice relationship and friendships. For about six months, we actually hung out a lot together, and I got to know the guy. I saw his studio. He played me all these tapes. He was constantly writing and playing. He played me stuff that was never released, but it was so Edward. I said, why don't you make a solo record? And he always felt that the Van Halen records were his solo records. But this stuff he was playing me was really quite nice. It was all the things we loved about the way he played. Unquote. And I'm going to jump down a few lines. We were hanging out and talking, and he says to me, let me show you this one thing I was working on. And he takes my guitar and starts playing, and I realized instantly that it was Edward Van Halen. It didn't sound anything like me. He was playing my gear, and it sounded like him. Unquote. And this part I found really interesting. Quote, One of the things you start to recognize when you're hanging out with people as famous as that is that they have to put up certain barriers to protect their privacy as well as their sanity. Edward had to create a barrier of sorts. But when you were let in, meaning if he felt you were good company and you resonated with him, then he wasn't a rock star by any means. He was a really fun, funny, creative, simple guy. You'd think you were just hanging out with a friend from down the street. Unquote. I find this fascinating for a number of reasons. Now, I've never been that famous. I have been in situations where there's a crowd of people that want to take your picture and want your autograph and want to talk to you, but never on that level. And just the level that I have experienced that I'm okay with it. You know, you get used to it. Uh, people much more famous than me get used to it. Last year, I met Dave Grohl, and um, yeah, he's just very at ease and comfortable with it. I've met Sarah Silverman. I'm not going to name drop. But I've known others, even ones that I've gotten to know, that become these different people in public. And it sounds like Eddie was that type of person. Ironically, the first time I met Steve Vai was like that in, in public. And, you know, I, I'd see at one point, at least in the guitar world, he became ridiculously famous. But I've met him since then in other situations and got to know him. And I really like that version of him. <laughs> But I think with Eddie, um, he not only had to put up this defensive wall that many others in the public eye have to do, he was also wrestling with these personal issues. Unfortunately, the one time I did meet him, it was very brief and he didn't seem all there. And I've since read it was a pretty dark period. But it's so good to hear that he got out of that. And I feel like I've gotten to know him through some of these videos I've seen. And um, by the way, his son Wolfgang's video for the, his new song, Distance, has incredible home footage. And there you really get to know the real him. It's incredible. Beautiful song, too. So as sad as it is that we lost him, it's kind of amazing we didn't lose him before. This is somebody he's was in rehab many times. Uh, there was a lot of concern for him over the years. And it does sound like he found himself again. He got lost there for a bit. He had his lost years. But the last five or six years, he regained his equilibrium. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I think lived a very good, satisfying life and became Ed Van Halen again. We... We got the Beatles for 10 years. We got Led Zeppelin for 10 years. We got Jimi Hendrix for way less than that. We got Eddie Van Halen for more than 40 years. And so we really are lucky. It will never be enough, but man, we're the lucky ones. We really are. And on that note, which I can't think of a better one to end on, this concludes Eddie Van Halen, our tribute, part two. I want to thank my guests for this episode. Brad Tolinsky and Matt Blackett. Both these guys gave so much great content, we could easily fill up another episode. I think at some point we'll either release it as bonus material or do a third Van Halen tribute, which I think we'll have to do anyway, because there's always so much more to get to with Edward. That'll happen down the road. Thanks once again to Zoom. I look forward to putting this PodTrack P4 to use. And also the H8, which I didn't get to talk about. It looks like a really cool device. Moods and Modes is produced by yours truly in association with Osiris Media. Our hands-on team members from Osiris are Kirsten Cluthy and Bradley Stratton, who is also assisting with some of the post-audio engineering. The music you're hearing right now 
is yours truly with Matt Zabrowski on drums and Nathan Peck on bass. Those guys are also on the song you heard earlier. The opening theme is yours truly. And special thank you to all our Patreon members. We could not do this without you. Anyone interested in supporting the podcast directly can do so by going to patreon.com slash alexskolnick. And you can support the podcast any way you like. You can tell your friends, hit subscribe, give us a review, or just listen. We're grateful to have you. Thank you very much. And I'll see you on the next episode. Be safe. Hey, check. Hey, stupid echo. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hi, this is Henry Kay host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music, because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.